DNA is cool. It's the code of life and what makes us who we are at a biological level. Know what else is cool? Open source DNA for animal conservation. Dr. Pawa Nakora is an award-winning scientist and an entrepreneur. Come join us as we speak about how Pawinda uses her talents in biotechnology and genetics for animal conservation efforts and creating sustainable solutions through interdisciplinary innovation. I'm Michelle Ong, and this is Steam Powered. Good morning, Pawinda. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today all about your journey through to you know, genomics and all the work that you do now. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's an absolute pleasure to be here on this uh, beautiful show and a beautiful initiative you've got to highlight all the amazing work that is happening in the world in the Steam space. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And you know, so really appreciative of your time as well. So getting straight into it, like, what drew you to the field of molecular biology? Because that was your original field of study, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, I call it, uh, rather than calling it a molecular biology, I would say that it's, it's, a, it's a study of DNA. You're talking to yeah. a DNA nerd. There is a disclaimer here. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in my life, has kind of revolved around this code of life or the blueprint of life. And the way you can study that is you need to go to the molecular levels. You have to go like really, really, really inside a cell, inside a nucleus to be able to understand this code of life. So, uh, yeah, it, it would be fair to call it molecular sciences, but there's many different uh, disciplines you could, you could put it under. Yes. Absolutely. So what attracted you to that? Oh, it's it's a very interesting, um, interesting journey, I must say. And it started at a, like most unexpected, most unexpected place, which was, um, you know, when I was growing up, I, I, I'm born in India. And when I was growing up, I was living in a very multi, multi-religious or a multicultural sort of a setting because my dad was in army. So we would go travel different places and living in those army camp areas where you're surrounded by people with many different ethnicities, many different um, religious backgrounds. And that's why, uh, that's why I, I got really, really confused that uh, when I went and asked the question, the same question uh, to people around me, that how did life started on this planet? And I think every child, like <laughs> when you're growing up, you kind of like get intrigued by where this all started. How are we mm. who we are and where did we come from? So that was yeah. a very simple question. But because <laughs> I got a different answer uh, from many different people around me, I was just like intrigued. It's like, seems like, you know, everybody has got a different theory. So what is the real deal here? And that's yeah. where it all started. And I kept asking the question and I'm still asking the question, to be honest. Uh, and along that journey, different people suggested different avenues. Um, mm. And I've chased that up. And one of my chemistry teacher, uh, when I was in year nine, actually, I asked her if she could answer that question um, as we were learning about organic reactions and different things that happen inside our body. And then she said, hmm, very interesting question. To be honest with you, we still do not have answer. And there is a whole scientific community who's been trying to understand evolution and where it all started and how this is whole dynamic format of life is kind of like connected. And she pointed me to DNA. 
that's it. That's awesome. <laughs> that's it. And that's where it started. <laughs> yeah, life for me and more I learned, more I'm intrigued and more I'm fascinated. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely amazing how incredible life Absolutely. And because it's such a relatively new field and it really is that we're all still figuring it out and there's so much we still don't know about how this all works and how we are made up and why, you know, the way that we are made up works the way it works. And it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the, the field has, or the, the knowledge has changed um, many different scenarios or perspectives. If you go India and people will tell you like, oh, this is uh, this the science of life, which is also called as Ayurveda in India. It's a holistic health mm. approach or the, or the most ancient medicine that, that is a personalized medicine or based uh, or kind of focus on the preventative aspects yeah. of things. Um, and people will tell you like your body is, you know, like may, it's it's all about your your body's constitution right and Mm. then it's about the life forces in the that's an ancient way of saying it or that's our ancient wisdom which is written in the in the ancient books whereas these days in my field we call it epigenetics you know we discovered genetics and we thought oh my god everything uh, goes and pinned down to the dna code which is of my body's constitution because it's the code of my life and this is the code of my my existence but as you move forward and now science is being able to sort of go deeper and deeper we've realized oh it's not just the genetics it's also the environment so there is a g by e happening and that's exactly what the ancient uh books or the science of life said so some days i'm just thinking like we're going in circles and reinventing ourselves because you know uh it's it's just uh all those languages which have been lost in the past uh carried a lot of wisdom which we're probably missing out at this absolutely that's why science spirituality and different language or humanities i feel it's all connected and more we connect the dots more we're going to be able to learn and uh, uncover the mystery yeah, absolutely. And you know, that, that is one of the most fascinating things about the way that, you know, our cultural beliefs work, because there's a, a lot of them may not have been stemmed in science, but there was reasoning behind them. And the way that it worked, a lot of it was, you know, based out of common sense or observation and experimentation, which is basically science. And it's just that the way that they did it, because they didn't have the tools and the technology, it was more primitive. But the theory was sound. <laughs> Absolutely. And and you spot on there when you when you say that the tools. So even like in my own lifetime, I have been in uh, in this field for say 20 years, uh, just about 20 years. And it when I started to put together the very first DNA puzzle, which was one of the key Australian pasture species, it took me seven years, Michelle, you wouldn't believe it. And it was like half a gigabase uh, sort of in-size DNA, which has got like about 500 million bases, right? Yeah. And just to give you a bit of a context that humans have got three, 3.2 billion pieces um, or billion letters in their DNA code. So the one I was doing was one sixth of the size of the human. So I yeah. would assume that, you know, it shouldn't take me very long, but it still took me seven years. Um, and now I do exactly the same thing in less than seven days. Because tools have changed, we have been able to develop much faster and efficient ways, much cheaper ways, and also like AI, machine learning, all these things. I mean, they're coming into effect and we are able to do things at a speed that probably we never imagined. Even in my lifetime, from seven years to seven days, I'm right now doing it. 
yeah so yes it's all about the tools and they will keep changing but the knowledge needs to progress and when we need to have a way to sort of progress and make it accessible and that's yes, why I absolutely. love that show because that's exactly what you're doing you're making it accessible to to the common um, people and that's where the innovation happens because um, I'm a scientist. I'm so lost within a DNA molecule that that's all I'm thinking about most of the time. But sometimes when I go and talk to my mom, who does not know anything about DNA, and she just points me out in directions, and I'm like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. I sh- maybe I should have, but thank you. Here I go. Yes, absolutely. And that's just one of those things. It's one of the reasons why you know doing this show is so important to me because it is about connecting the dots and you know so many times you hear about these discoveries that have come up almost by accident because the people who were so focused in their fields were literally so focused that they they didn't get to perceive these other outside perspectives and one of my favorite bits of um uh, science that i stumbled upon was a person he works in cancer research and he was in japan and he went to a bread shop and when they were scanning the bread they just put the bread in the machine and the bread machine scanned the shape and told you what price it was and that you know it was using you know ai and visual design and graphics and stuff like that to figure these things out and he went cancer cells are like bread and then from there he just went okay, so what if we just made it look for smaller shapes? And so they, you know, he talked to the people who built this machine. And so bread technology for scanning at point of sale has been incorporated into cancer research. And it's like, you, you don't get that kind of combination unless you're out there and know that stuff is happening. And people have different applications to all these amazing bits of technology and science. And you just don't think about it because it's not your space. Exactly. And that, that's that's why like diversity is so important in science. Again, yeah. because you, when you know that there's a whole world out there, which is not exactly looks like you're, you're this little world, you, yeah. you become all of a sudden so many more doors open to you in terms of knowledge, but also like that understanding that it's it's different everywhere. And there mm. is something special you can find in those settings makes you a lot more empathetic as well. Um, I think that's uh, that's something that uh, we can do heaps better uh, from what how we are doing at this moment. So incorporating all these, um, you know, different different settings and different wisdom from different parts of the world. If we yeah. have that diversity come to STEM or STEAM, whichever way we want to go, I think that's that's where we need to head, and that's why it becomes absolutely important to engage as diverse people as you can into into science or STEAM. Yes, completely agree. Like, totally on board with that. <laughs> so, you know, you, you've spoken about how your cultural background has, you know, made you think about the way that you do your science. Uh, has has there been any other you know, specific notable things that you've gone, oh, hey, I, I, I know this, or this makes sense to me because of my cultural background, because of my ancestral knowledge? Like, is is yeah, it just feels like there's so many things we can just go, oh, there's a connection. 
Yeah, I'll be very honest with you. That has been actually my key source of inspiration as I have done science. I know a lot of people like would laugh at me, but this is absolutely true. As I said, my parents were very religious. So my mom will uh, wake me and my brother up at like 4 a.m. because that's the time like we have to go to bed. It was very disciplined household. One, there was an army effect from dad. And then my mm -hmm. mom also followed that strict regime. So she will wake, she'll put us in bed really early and then we get up really early in the morning while she will do her uh, her prayers and she will read it loud because that kind of like the way we we understood what she's saying. And um, I mean, you you listen to things from your own perspective, right? It could be the same yeah. thing read to two, two people and they would get exact, um, like very different meanings out of it. And that was exactly what was happening with me and my brother. My brother is like more like, um, you know, he, he's an engineering. Um, yeah. And I, I've always been fascinated by life and biology and biological side of the thing. So whenever she will say, oh, my God. So all these things, um, you know, they, they are up to the decimal places in, in, in those Vedas that uh, that kind of put their religious aspect in there. And I was like, how did they know? I, I would ask this question, mom, when was this written, this book written? And she will tell me like about... 5,000 years back or 3,000 years back. So it's it will always be like thousands of years back. And I'm like, mm. but this is what NASA is doing. And how do they know like up to exact, you know, numbers that how far is moon? Um, and that kind of gave me the validation that um, it's just because I do not understand that language mm. or I don't have a way to comprehend it. Doesn't mean that I always have to challenge uh, that knowledge maybe there is a better like I need to take that knowledge and then find my own ways or tools to actually validate it and that's how my science has worked um, that's amazing when, when, when you come to DNA uh, it's it's very clearly said in a, and then I was intrigued and I went around and uh, I was very much into the religious books. I, I went around and picked up a copy of, um, you know, Bible and, uh, and Gita, Bhagavad Gita, which is like another ancient Hindu Hindu religion culture because I am a Sikh. I come from the Sikh community. So I've read like our Guru Granth Sahib Ji. And uh, so I, I found that there was like an underlying commonality between all of them and all of them pretty much say the same thing when it comes to origin of life but people yeah. put it in many different aspects so I was just intrigued that why every everything says that we are all connected mm. and it's not just us humans connected but it's every other life form is connected and then we are made up of universe and universe is made up of us mm. and why I'm saying that it's 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 just the philosophy of the origin of life and when you actually yeah. go inside the DNA, as I said, that now we have started to understand that it is not just the genetic code, but it mm. is also the environment that genetic code is exposed to. And that is why I and my family could have exactly the same genetic code, my son, but we will be exposed to different kinds of um, diseases or predisposed to different kinds of genetic risks because we it's, a, it's epigenetics, yes. right? And how does that epigenetics happen? So, and this is what have been my key focus of my my um, my research that I have been trying to understand that how DNA pack itself inside a very very tiny nucleus, which is only six microns. Mm. And by understanding that, we have been able to actually 
solve one of the biggest long-standing challenge of genomics community as I as I I'm just going to go back in time and I, yes. as I said like it took me seven years to do that one particular DNA puzzle and now it takes me seven days and that mm. comes back to this this thing that when um, so our body has got about um, say 37 trillion cells in it okay which are dead and born, you know, the cycle of life is going within the cells as well. And every single cell has a has a tiny nucleus, which is six microns. You can't see that with your naked eye. And inside that single nucleus is 3.2 billion letters code of DNA sitting. Okay. For for that three point that that if you stretch it out, it's about a two meter long noodle, right? And that noodle or that particular rope or what, whichever way you want to um, imagine it has to program and has to actually make a life uh, work, you know. So how it is, it has to talk to each other. Different bits has to talk to each other, right? Yeah. And how it is going to do that when it is just kind of like packing inside a very tiny space. If we know that how that happens, that tells us how to solve that puzzle. Because yes. we, uh, so what we've done is we've developed a technology called in situ HiC, and uh, that uh, technology can actually give you a high throughput confirmation capture of your entire DNA, that how it was sitting inside a three dimensional space. Because until until before DNA Zoo happened, everybody has been actually trying to solve the DNA puzzle looking in one dimension, right? Mm -hmm. But one dimension doesn't give you that perspective because it's sitting inside that three-dimensional space the moment you're yeah. able to sort of see it in a three dimension it just starts to come to life and that explains that why when molecular biology started or genetics field started people like found those silver bullets oh one molecular marker i'm going to give you a solution for that but it's not that simple because, because it lacks context connected and it starts from your dna packing so it could mm. be a genetic region or a loci sitting on your chromosome 7 that has to come in contact with a loci sitting on your chromosome 1. And that happens during that, you know, packing happens. And the moment those two loci come in contact and they're able to talk to each other, that dialogue happens. And that is exactly when that magic happens or that disease happens or that disaster happens, right? Yeah. So it's all about connection. And yeah. this inside a cell I'm talking, and that is programming life on this planet and beyond mm. this planet. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 really fascinating. I'm sorry, I went into a lot of detail. No, 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 no. This, this is, this is, is amazing. Exactly, yeah, so this was the question I got inspired by reading all those religious books that, yeah, they keep on saying life is connected. And when actually you start to investigate that in an experimental setting, that connection is where it all starts. Absolutely. And yeah, it, it, it is super fascinating because you know, you're, you're right. So many things in our world are three-dimensional and that provides the context for the way that things react to each other or interact. So yeah, it, it, it makes sense that if you're actually flattening, you know, the DNA into, you know, a flat two-dimensional space, you lose that context because you don't understand the relationship between the different parts of the DNA. And, you know, adding 3D genomics to give that support and to give that structure and positional information would, you know, just enrich your understanding of how all the different bits work together. And 
that that's very cool I, i'm very much into that that's awesome <laughs> thank you so if if i if i may say that um and this is a big problem uh, humanity is facing right now yeah because if you look at the world right now we are looking at the world from just from a human perspective because we have evolved to be the most intelligent species again it's yeah. again that one dimensional one perspective that is coming yes. in play in here right so when and that's why we are in all the troubles right now like you know the cop 27 is happening um and we're talking about you know climate change we're talking about biodiversity loss we're talking about all these natural calamities or disasters that are happening around us um mm. and i i i honestly michel i i strongly believe that because it's that one perspective we're looking at how it is affecting us and us mm. only and how can we solve that problem for us and us only yeah because we're not the only ones living on this planet we're sharing it with a very dynamic ecosystem mm. and which is programmed to be connected with each other and um i I kind of got really emotional uh one day when I was playing with my 9-year-old and we were playing a game of Jenga you know like that wooden blocks you yep. kind of build a little tower mm-hmm. and um and we started pulling thing blocks out of that and suddenly my mind goes oh my god oh my god this is exactly what is happening we're losing one species every 3 hours on this planet mm. right and we're losing like hundreds or thousands and if you just look at the un records there's about 1 million species sitting at the door of extinction at this moment and they're going it's it's just like constantly going and what is happening that that's a very dangerous game of jenga we are playing on mm. this planet and as soon as those blocks are going and that one keystone block or the keystone species we call in biological sciences the moment you pull that one out that's when it kind of the whole ecosystem Collapses. falls apart right mm-hmm. so so i don't think so that we we can really solve all these pressing issues we are facing if we only keep thinking about humans or me yeah. or you or our comforts we we we've done extremely well as a species wow. we've come a long long way and we are so intelligent so i don't understand that why we are behaving so dumb when it's coming to a question <laughs> like this it's a no brainer to save yourself you have to save everything else you're connected with because it's a it's, yes. you're not going to make it by yourself only even if you go to mars you know yes <laughs> you're going to have exactly the same problem there so you just transferring it you just transferring it from one 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 space to another space so yeah it's it just makes me sad uh, that why are we so dumb i mean we are not dumb why are we behaving so dumb why are we just just you know don't want to look at it uh, from other yeah. perspectives yeah yeah and i think sometimes it's because it's so big because you know as as you've discovered as you start poking at these little things it's like things are so much bigger than we kind of understand and that can be really overwhelming for some people because of the perspective of where they sit in yeah. everything and their position and we're so tiny compared to all these other things that are happening around us and yeah it 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 means that we do act dumb because sometimes it's too hard to figure out what to do next there's just so many there's so many moving parts 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, as as you said, that's all the more reason that we need to work on this steam and diversity and collaboration across all of these factors, because as we're seeing, everything is connected. Just recently, I, you know, I had a conversation with a geographer and she was talking about how in the Northern Hemisphere, they keep an eye on the weather patterns in the Southern Hemisphere because they're predictors of what's going to happen in the Northern Hemisphere, especially when it comes to fire and the way that, you know, all of the wildfires and the bushfires and the things that we have here will impact what goes on in the Arctic Circle. And, you know, you think about the fact that, yes, weather is connected. It's kind of part of the globe, but you tend to think more locally and you don't realize about the ripple effects that things that happen here might have over there. And even though it's fire, it's not just natural fires, it's man-made things and all these other factors of the way that we interact with our environment. So, yeah, it's starting to build that perspective on how what we do impacts everything else. Yeah, so just bring that three-dimensional perspective. That's what we need to do. It's not going to be 3D this time. It's going to be probably many-dimensional because, uh, as I said, there's many different formats of life you know, which are programmed yeah. to work together. And at the same time, there are many different disciplines who are trying to understand and scratch it from their own different ways. So that's where, like, you know, when people sometimes get really, they, they look at me as like, oh, you're an animal scientist? Oh, no, 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 you are a plant scientist. Oh, no, you work on microbes. I'm just like, it's, it's different forms of life. And more you learn about one t- teaches you about the other because it's mm. all connected and you and and working with computational biologists working with programmers is how i have been able to develop and understand the knowledge of the toolkit that i can use to answer my question but they have different questions but at the at the end of the day uh, at the end of the day just like the whole life is connected same way all the disciplines and different aspects or the questions we are asking are also connected yes and the day you realize the value of connecting to those people or those expertise that's where the organic multidisciplinary approach comes it -hmm. takes us all some time i i would say i'm extremely grateful and lucky to be able to sort of uh, come to australia because australia is very much um, is very flexible when it comes to disciplinary boundaries and that was mm. one of the key reasons for me to immigrate from uh, from india to australia because when i did my bachelor's in agriculture and plant protection space i was really interested okay i've learned like you know there are certain factors that can cause damage to the plant or the crop setting and I wanted to learn about all those factors because in my mind, everything was always connected. Mm. But I was not allowed to because the education system there does not allow you to move from one discipline to another. So it just kind of starts broad, but then it kind of narrows and narrows and narrows. So, for example, um, if I have done my bachelor's in plant protection and then I choose one <clears throat> of those, like either I choose insects, which is entomology. And that is exactly what I did. Or then I have to go choose plant breeding or pathogens or whatever. But once I choose mm. that, then I'm just going further narrow. I'm not allowed to come back and go other side and wow. this side, which Australia allows you. And that really fascinated me. 
when I came to know that I can actually, after my master's in entomology, which is studying insects and how the dialogue happens between a plant and an insect when that disease or that infestation happens. Now I want to know what how a fungus does it, which is a pathogen yeah. side of the thing. So and Australia allowed me and I had a PhD scholarship to come and study that. And that that really gave me a bit of a global perspective. Oh, this is how insects conquered the space and this is how pathogens and if you when i looked at the molecular level the dialogue was pretty much the same taking over somebody's immune system and taking over their their programming and that's how i started to go deeper and deeper but i would not have had that perspective if i would have been um following that uh, traditional route of education or academia yeah. that we are normally allowed so so yeah, congratulations and well done to Australia that it's already already on the right right path. But still, um, there's a lot of work to be done because even when you're allowed to go um, multidisciplinary, uh, mm-hmm. the system is is not very favoring to that. Um, yes, the different kind of APIs we we kind of have in universities, uh, yes. like publish or perish thing. Any good science takes time. You know, yeah. and to be able to do quality work, which translates into something meaningful, not just a publication. It's a, it's a completely different space to go to, and the systems don't allow it. So system allows very short time experimental approaches. You do it mm-hmm. and move on to the next one. So you don't get to actually build on that for the rest of your life. Um, and I think that's where we are failing a little bit to our younger generation because I find it very hard to inspire them, um, you know, because they, they're so passionate to solve the problems around us. And for that, they have to become very multidisciplinary. We cannot call them um, a molecular biologist or a computational uh, person. We have to acknowledge them as, you know, our thought leaders, our science leaders or our you know, technology leaders, rather than putting them in those boxes. Yes, and that starts exactly. with school. And I've I've discovered uh, through my superstars of the STEM network where we had an incredible opportunity to go to the high schools and primary schools and actually connect to the uh, to the kids to be able to tell them, uh, give them a little bit of a flavor of what happens in universities or what are what are the kind of job opportunities available in the STEM sector. And that's where I realized that. Uh, that was no different to how it was in India. And we're mm-hmm. setting the foundation wrong. We're just kind of really boxing science and maths and English, all these things very separate. Um, and if we put that in the mindset, even if you do allow later on a lot of flexibility, it's kind of useless because you did not carry that from the foundation stage and if the slab is not right you can't build a good good building on it so you've got to work on your foundational slab so yes yeah no it uh, I'm, I'm i'm really grateful for for that program because i think that is an absolute thing that we all need to do because there has to be a succession plan and i yes. need to be able to be able to tell the kids and get them excited because they are the, the future leaders and they'll bring those new innovative tools into the field and if they're not excited about it, then you know they're not going to do it. That's right. You have, they have to have the passion to be able to carry that on as a career. Absolutely. And yeah, you, you've just, yeah, you, you've hit on one of my biggest bugbears <laughs> because when, you know, when we're at school, I understand the school system's changed since I was there. It's been a while. 
but it's still very much, you know, you're boxed into your individual fields. And then you, you know, you choose one particular path at university. And if you don't understand that you can go multidisciplinary, you think that once you've chosen that path, you're stuck with that forever. If you choose chemist, you're a chemist. If you choose, you know, biology, you're a biologist. And, you know, so many people I've spoken to, you know, that's where they started, but they've done other things or they've branched into other areas because other areas touch on the original field. And, you know, they're working with other people who do other things that weren't that original field. And in the real world, that's how that works. That's how you end up collaborating and building more science and innovating. And, you know, even at universities, as you said, like here, I always thought that here was a bit more restrictive than, say, the U.S. Because in the U.S., I've spoken to people who went, oh, I started in political science and I'm doing nuclear physics. It's like, that's a leap. That, that, that's an interesting change of direction. How did you manage that? Whereas here, I can't imagine that being a possible path if you enter the Australian tertiary education system because it's just so completely different. It is. I mean, it is, it is, as I said, it is better than a lot of places, right? But there is a a huge room for improvement and there's a huge opportunity for Australia to become a leader in the world because there's so many amazing Mm. things that are happening here. Um, yeah. that, uh, that if we just, you know, just look at it from a little different perspective and incorporate our strengths into that, um, I think as a nation, we can grow leaps and leaps and bounds in that area. So, and, and that's why that sometimes I'm just like, I get a little, you know, like, why, why are we not doing it? Yeah. What is stopping us from doing it? Because it's, it's us, you know, change starts from you. And I, I have tried to do it, but it's, it's not, it's not fun. I would say it does takes <laughs> up a lot of energy, exhaust you some days because, as even as an academic, when when you, you do find, uh, you know, you, if you do get, you know, the right time at the right place, and you do get a tenure track position in a university, even again, then you are pinned to that one particular. Mm. And it becomes yeah. even harder because they're like, oh no, 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 your salary is coming only to look after this tiny yeah. bit. This but is I'm this like, is your focus. You need to this, make sure that whatever you work on is within this scope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. it's kind of branded as with a fancy word, you know, key performance indicators, which only you're going to look at that. And if you do anything else outside that, sorry, you're on your own, work in the night or on your weekend or whenever. And as an academic, I already work like pretty much whatever <laughs> hours are there. <laughs> you yeah. Know? So it, it it's it's just not it's just not uh, you know it's not giving that creative space and steam yeah. or or you know thought leadership requires that creative space. You need for for the innovation to happen or for something different to happen. If it's going to be the same, you know, you want to go through the same and same and same again, then okay, fine. Then this is a perfect way to do it. Yeah. You have to make a choice here, you know. Exactly. And, yeah, I I started, oh, I stuck my head into an interesting conversation on Twitter about, you know, being able to create multidisciplinary support environments. And, you know, for me, because I you know, I'm a dev, I work remotely. I'm just used to the remote thing. So it's like, well, because so many people do so many different things, but they're not always in the same place, you know, what can we do to support being able to do science remotely? Because, you know, having access to people 
with different equipment, different experiences, different, you know, disciplines, it seems like the ideal place to do science. Like, I mean, like it, you, you just have so many opportunities mm. and, you know, they were saying, but it's hard because you need the in-person, you need to have the physical proximity in order to make the science work best. And it's like, well, is it just that, or is it just that we haven't got the right tools to make it work best from a remote way? Because it's not, uh, as a life, as a scientist and an academic, there's a lot of travel involved. You, you either have to pursue your career and then move and relocate frequently in order to be able to progress, or you stay in one place and then you might have a cap on what you're doing because you're limited geog geographically and in terms of who can provide funding and all that. So as a system, like in my head, it's like there, there seems to be a thing that we need to do to kind of make this work more flexibly. But as you said, KPIs, funding, grants, those things are very limiting and yeah, it, it's, a systemic problem. It is, and and as you said, I mean, I can I can probably um, say a little bit more. Add to I would like to add to that that sometimes your geographic location could be a, one of the key things that kind of stopping yes. you from being able to you know connect. And uh, what could be a better example than the most isolated place in the world? Like <laughs> we, it's yeah. so hard to get to us, and it's the same way. It's so hard to go anywhere. It costs a lot, and it's the same grant we I get as similar to like an eastern state. But then uh, going from Melbourne to Sydney or Melbourne to Canberra is like you know it's just peanuts. Whereas for me, yeah. I have to cost a little higher. So I'm always I'm always like kind of pushed back because my expenses for the same doing the same things are costing more to the government or costing more to the funding. Yeah. So that that is definitely one problem. The connectivity is is absolutely critical uh, for us mm. to deliver science. But then, having said that, what I bring to the table, a Melbourne person or a Sydney person does not, because I am yeah. sitting right here, where ten percent of the world's biodiversity is, out of Australia's fifteen biodiversity biodiversity hotspots. Eight of them yeah. uh, are in Western Australia, which is more than fifty percent, guys. You know, so it's it's got to be calculated that way. It's it's not it's it's got to be like return on investment uh, is not the right way to do it. Probably return mm. on uh, based on the opportunity that person brings in, or the the breadth or the special you know unique thing that person brings in, or that particular geographic location. As I, I it's it's absolutely important. And then having said that. Um, you know, I've had an opportunity to work very closely with Houston. So my lab is a sister lab to the Bella College of Medicine's Aiden lab, who's kind of mm. the pioneers in discovering the architecture of the of the DNA inside. And he's the inventor of the in-situ high C technology, which kind of changed my entire way of looking at life. And I was able to do so yeah. much. And uh, we, we like I go to a conference and, and that's where I connected with him in 2015. And I was blown away. He's a he's a medicine person. I'm a I was doing um, you know the pasture. So when I went and approached him, I was like, can can we do this? Um, yeah, you know this plant species. I'm really puzzled. He's like, oh, we don't do weeds in our lab. Like he made a joke. <laughs> like it's not a weed. It's it's one of our key Australian pasture species, our livestock. Yeah. Species industry depend on that and anyways once I made the connection we kind of really uh, connected and uh, probably the very first person to take some plants in his lab in a medicine lab in Bella College and trying to apply the protocol which they were doing with the blood cells to my plant cells which were very different but there we go and um, 
it it was a successful experiment we were able to solve a problem which i was not able to solve seven years and yeah. got the grad students really excited in the team houston zoo was across the road and yeah. they started to sort of look into many different forms of life and this is and within next two years uh, they ended up doing quite a lot of species of houston zoo and we didn't have a name for the project at that time <laughs> So I was called in and from a plant scientist perspective, I was the only Australian in the room. And then we are discussing um, how can we, we've got a tool which really works and it beautifully works and it can solve quite a lot of problems that the scientific community is challenged with uh, right now. And that's where DNA Zoo originated. Yeah. And it all happened like I just made a two days trip, literally, uh, and connected to all those world leaders in that, that field. But we kept in touch through Zoom and all. That time it was not that popular. But it, it as I again, it's, um, you know, it's beyond my KPIs because I was a plant scientist, not supposed to be working with a medicine, uh, medicine lab. And then it's a 3 a.m. catch up every week. It takes, yeah. you know, it, it, because it's the time zone differences and all that. So as I'm, all I'm trying to say is amazing things can happen if we can have that flexibility in our systems that things yeah. could be done outside your KPIs. And uh, and we, we are here to support that. Um, exactly. Organizational structures are not set up to support these. At this moment, they say it, they say all the right things, but I can tell you that that is really not the truth on the ground level. It's all on you, mm. uh, what, uh, which is great. I mean, I, in academia, I'm allowed to do that. Like, if <laughs> I can, I can take things on me. So this is brilliant. But I, I wish if it is more facilitated and supported. Uh, especially yeah. in parts of the world where you 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 have some challenges in terms of connecting to the rest of the world or being able to travel, so there's an additional layer of support that is probably required in Western Australia from the government as well as from the organisations, and I think yeah. that's uh, that would be one of the best investments they would make. To Absolutely. And, and and offer all these amazing things we have around us and the knowledge we can potentially generate. Uh, yeah. to you know make this world a better place so we have a big uh, big um, advantage and there is an opportunity and we just need to take it out there and tell people about what we've got and how can we offer it exactly and I mean look what you've managed to achieve just by you know taking it outside the box a little bit and you know and look at how many advancements that you're able to make as a result like yeah, it's, it's it's just amazing. Otherwise, otherwise it was a consortium that would have started in US. Like all the all the big things happen there and end up there. So, I was yes, I I didn't have much authority at that time. Like you know, being a mid career researcher or an early career researcher, but I kind of like when everybody was talking and I'm just like, hang on, how are you going to do all these amazing um, you know connections across the tree of life when you're not thinking Australia because we've got 87% of the species which are just found in Australia. You can't have a kangaroo give you exactly the same results if you pick up a sample from Houston Zoo or San Diego Zoo because G by E happens, guys. Yeah. So that kangaroo has been born in US. It's been a long time. It's been in that zoo. So things would not exactly be the same as they would in a natural setting in Australia. And probably that is the right sample to to do science on because you're investing a lot of resource, time and money, you know, in doing so. 
uh, and this technology has a lot of potential. So kind of uh, somehow I was able to make that case. And that's how I started doing Animals of Furry Friends. I have never known much about them. Uh, that was amazing because it just kind of rang bell. And then I also told them that, oh, by the way, we've got one of the biggest supercomputers in our town. Like, Where do you come from? And I'm like, Perth? <laughs> I literally had to pull out the map and show them that this is where I'm coming from. Yeah. I mean, people knew Sydney, people knew Melbourne, and uh, and and it is like you know they still didn't believe me that we have petaflops of power and and supercomputing <laughs> facilities in Perth, and they made a trip two weeks later. Just they were so intrigued, and I showed them videos and all that sort of stuff. It's yeah. like that's how I'm able to work on these aspects, you know, because we've got the power, we've got the infrastructures in here. Um, but it's it's really funny, like how isolated we are and how much work we need to do as a state to be able to go out there and showcase what we've got to offer. Uh, not right. not just exactly. in a natural setting, but also in an infrastructural point of view, um, the, all, the, all the investments that have happened. Absolutely. And we do have so many things here that, you know, can advance science. Like we've, we've got, you know, the Pawsey Supercomputer, we've got access to everything. People are considering here, you know, for the space elevator, stuff like that. Like, we've got space, we've got infrastructure, we can do it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my, my dream is to go on Mars and do sort of what sort of life format or the programming happens in there. If there has been any life in the past or if there is a potential, <laughs> you can you can like seriously like and, and I think WA has probably the best opportunities to be do to be able to do that. Uh, really we were the first ones to, you know, set up all these big mining um, uh, companies and infrastructures in this part of the world. And uh, I think we have a very strategic advantage when it comes to doing it in this space as well. So we should definitely be looking, uh, we should be definitely looking to mine for knowledge in <laughs> the outer space, because I think knowledge is the most empowering thing uh, when it comes it to, you know, making you bigger or more prosperous. It's not the, uh, the resources we normally after or the material things, because they they will be consumed and gone and you don't know what problems they will create for you in the future like now we are ended up in but knowledge is something that always leads to prosperity always leads to empowerment so it's, we should be mining for knowledge there yeah i think we should without any without just, any hesitation oh yes certainly and you know th this is a great way to bring us back to you know dna zoo so, you know, you, you, we've mentioned that before, and it's where you, you're collecting the DNA of the animals in Australia and all the creatures and other species. But, you know, what is the objective of DNA Zoo? It's a very good question. So DNA Zoo is originally, as I, as I already given you the story, that it started as a fun Friday afternoon project. Everybody was excited. We just started to test and collect that knowledge. Uh, but then we also realized that, as I said, like, you know, one of the biggest mm. problems um, the world is facing right now is biodiversity loss. And with that loss, we are also losing a lot of um, a lot of knowledge that could be used to sort of um, that could be used for mankind if, when it comes to human health. Um, for example, you know, whales don't get cancer. Horses don't get cancer. Uh, elephant sharks are the slowest aging um animals on the planet so you know why are we looking uh, why are we looking inside us only to find the cures mm. or testing you know just a few different model species when you've got all this wonderful nature or the mother nature 
has it all figured it out, figured out, you know. So, uh, so that that is kind of one of the key motivation to learn about the superpowers of other species who live on this planet, um, carry and how that can be actually utilized to first save them so that we don't lose them, because yeah. if we lose them, then that whole superpower is gone from this planet earth mm. so we need to conserve them and conservation requires so far conservation has happened if i give you the the most iconic uh, species example koala you know as, nobody thinks of australia without thinking koala and the hugs you know the cuddles you can get and uh, we we've that species have faced that issue of you know going down and declining because of the habitat destruction and they're very slow and difficult like you know they're sleeping most of the time and they have a very particular diet of this particular kind of eucalypt so again there's a connection from an animal to the plant you can't save the animal if the plant is not there and you can't have the plant mm. if, the, if the natural uh, ecosystem is not there and all that sort of stuff so um so in terms of the koalas when the conservation program started uh, how they breed uh, they do a breeding management uh, for species conservation is like look at two individuals all like you two look different so you'll make a good sort of a pair but things what they look on the surface is not what they are inside right yeah so what happened as a result we we shot in the dark and we ended up um you know completely inbreeding our koalas there's a mm. big number now yes the box ticked we got more but genetically the genetic diversity functionally is not, yeah that's not true so what i think is that you know we as humans got our first dna um sequenced in 2003 and less than 21 years i mean we are celebrating 21st dna uh sort of um, um birthday dna genome assembly birthday and we've come a long, long way. We are able to do and find diseases, predisposed diseases, even before the baby is born, you know, and we are able to do personalized medicine. We are able to do some amazing things, develop a vaccine, you know, under two years, um, know about every single variant of that virus, you know, the COVID virus. So this is all because we are, we are trying to build that knowledge and act on that knowledge. So why are we not doing this for other species when we've got the tools and the technology everything to be able to do this so the biggest uh, biggest thing that uh, dna zoo brought to the table was not spend three billion dollars like we spent on our on our own dna genome assembly we we have developed an algorithm uh, that is able to because we are able to look at things in a three dimension so we are able to solve those puzzles a lot efficiently than looking them at one dimension we're able mm -hmm. to do this for one thousand dollars sequencing cost compared to the 2.7 billion dollar sequencing cost uh, that was, you know, our DNA. So there's a huge, yeah. uh, and that makes it all of a sudden practical to be able to do every um, favorite species or, you know, that needs help. And that's where we started. Uh, we, we've grown very, um, you know, it was, it was amazing uh, that how many people actually kind of resonated with that idea and come together from multiple disciplines from, uh, we, we are across more than nine countries at this moment wow. we're a global consortium uh, not for profit and uh, we've got more than 120 collaborating partners all across the globe and uh, and i i founded dna zoo australia um, at the university of western australia as a leading node they provided me some basic uh, basic infrastructure to get started and uh, you know chase my dream of uh, uh, 
evolution and how how life happened and where it happens where it started and probably yeah. where it is going as well because you can you can do a lot of uh, a lot of stuff these days using these technologies so yeah now that's the story of dna zoo we've done more than um, more than 50 iconic australian species in the last uh, Three years of operations. We just recently got funded by Lottery West, which is uh, you oh, know wonderful. WA Genome Atlas. As I said, yeah. as a state, we've got ten percent of the world's biodiversity, so we've got so such an opportunity. And I am extremely grateful to Lottery West to come behind this, um, you know, and for us to be able to put that whole WA Genome Atlas, um, which is kind of like a catalog of life, for very amazing species that only happens to be in WA being a biodiversity. Yeah. So I think that will that will bring a lot of attention and a lot of interest from the rest of the world um, to connect the dots uh, of different things they are studying to mm. this very isolated place. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really interested and intrigued by how life survives on this, you know, super poor soils got absolutely zero nutrients in them and yet there's all sorts of beautiful beautiful plants you see around you wildflowers how does that all happen how does yes. mother nature do it and, <laughs> and can can we can we learn what can we learn from that yeah exactly and it's fascinating because you know whenever people talk about conservation you know they think about it it is just usually the environment and then you can, you know people bring up breeding programs but it really is about the dna because as you said it's g and e so it's yeah, it's it's amazing that you know people now will have access to all this information to be able to, you know, put together the DNA side to the you know, environmental side and, you know, figure out what they can find out from that combination. Yeah, it's it's all about connecting yeah. the dot, Michelle. I'm sorry, I'm cutting you, but uh, one yeah. key thing that we changed and not made it like an academic project because normally as an academic, whatever I discover, I would like to publish it, you know, and get mm. all the credit for me and my organization who spent a lot of money and time on that. But probably we don't have that much time uh, at no. our, um, you know, at at our disposal to be able to do something with such a vision where a species is lost every three hours. So we yeah. decided as a consortium that we're gonna just be brave and take a very different approach, and that might risk our jobs and our our organizations not uh, not supporting this project. We decided to put the data out there in public domain as soon as it is generated, and for yes. everyone, uh, you know, for research and conservation purposes go feel free download and take it and connect the dot whichever dot you need to connect it to and so that you can use it and we're not public i mean we are publishing papers but we're looking at much bigger questions by connecting the dots of different life forms so that's kind of what yeah. our motivation is but at the same time we publish like this morning i um i published one of the two only uh water amphibious mammals which is like uh rakali it's a big big water rat uh, and yep. it's near endangered in WA. So basically what we do is we do Mammal Mondays, Fishy Fridays, Whale Wednesdays, and kind of like put it all out there with a simple blog, which which gets you excited about, oh my yes. God, I didn't know this this kind of species exists and this is why this species is so special, you know? Mm. And here is its DNA map and let's go and compare it. And so it's it's that, that approach is pretty, um, I would say, pretty brave and probably we are one yeah. of the very first consortiums in the world to take that step and say okay fine I'm an academic okay fine I can have a few less papers but I'm gonna do it and I'm so grateful that um, 
it has been it it has it has it is becoming the norm now people are yes. starting to join that uh, that uh, sort of approach that you know research is not for me only to progress my career research we sign up for science um, because we wanted a greater good and we wanted to do something bigger and more meaningful with our lives but we did get caught up in our kpis for some reason <laughs> that's right and yeah that's just one thing i did want to bring up that it's so amazing that dna zoo has open darted all of this information because yeah yeah traditionally a lot of the time with with research you have to hoard your data so closely because you know it's tied up with ethics or approvals and grants and it yeah there's so much stuff that we have available to us that isn't cataloged and not databased in science and you know i was speaking to kit prendergast who is you know she, she loves bees bees are her thing but she you know she was saying that there's so many species out there that are partially described but they're all kept in museums because people aren't databasing them because we don't put the funds into doing all of these things so people don't know that they exist or they have to redo the work every time they're trying to research into a particular species and it's such a waste of resources because you know you're having is, to repeat it is taxpayers money and the least accessible uh, to yeah. probably the, the taxpayers actually the knowledge yes. which we generate exactly so you know being able to create all this stuff and make it open data and you know opening it up to not just researchers but citizen scientists because with so much stuff available to us and with science and technology and all these things so accessible compared to what it used to be, people are just tinkering. And, you know, so many things are being found through tinkering by people who aren't specialists in this area because they've just gone, I'm curious about this. I'm going to take a look. And, you exactly. know, giving them the data to do it. Like, it, it's, exactly. it's very cool. I love it. Yeah. And data is our next bioeconomy as well, by the way. So we really need to make sure that we, we kind of generate and we give that opportunity to people to be able to sort of take it next level because it's going to be the future. And exactly. it's, at least we've, we've got a digital, we've digitally conserved the species. Yes. At least that's the best I could do. Uh, yeah. in my lifetime because that's where my powers sort of you know restrict me but yeah you know when the movement start and you provided the foundation I'm sure the the, the other people will be able to take it to the next level yeah. exactly and that's awesome I love that that's the best <laughs> okay and you know you, you also mentioned that aside from the animals you're also doing the plant side and you know your pasture species so I'm very curious about that because, you know, agriculture is such a big part of the Australian economy and you don't think about the importance of a grazing plant. <laughs> but that, that's one of the things that you're focusing on, on, you know, all these, uh, what's it, the forages, the terms that you're using. So what is the focus of that and what is the benefit of researching these, you know, pastoral foraging plants for, you yeah. know, science applications. <laughs> yeah, no, thank, thank you. That, that's a great question. And also I would like to say that I, um, I'm not just doing the animals at this moment. I'm doing the plants as well. I'm still yeah. like very curious to do the kangaroo paws uh, as importantly as I'm doing the different kangaroo species. Yeah. But going back to the time when actually I started my career and I was just mainly focusing on the, on the forages and uh, the, the reason was my job was to support the meat and livestock industry and find out that why we have such a huge methane emissions into the environment. 
And mm-hmm. because 40% of those emissions are actually coming from the livestock or the agriculture sector in, in Australia, which is quite a big, big number. And um, I did not know that a cow burps about 200 to 300 liters of methane into the environment on a daily basis. And a sheep does like 20 to 30 liters of of that. I was just like, oh, my goodness. And how many Australians got? I started to do my numbers and it just made complete sense to me. I'm like, oh, my God. And that's where I started looking into different factors. Um, and there's like, you know, it's the plant, what bugs they've got. So what happens mm. is like when they eat, they're not able to convert all of that um, food or fiber into into energy or resource they are being grown yeah. for or into meat. Or, or products. They It's kind of an, a bit of an indigestion problem. And mm. a lot of that gets burped out. Yeah. Right. And that burp is the methane, which goes to the environment. And uh, when you look at different factors, it could be the genetics of the different animals because different species, different breeds will have different levels of emission. And it yeah. it also linked to what kind of bugs or microbiome in their stomach, yeah. which is helping them. But the biggest factor that we I identified based on all the previous knowledge was it was actually the, the the plants they were eating or the food, you know. And this also connected back to when I was listening to my mom, like she always used to say, and I'm sure a lot of moms say that, and I say this to my son as well, you are what you eat, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, so she used to like make sure that we're eating the right thing and the right protein and the right kind of the diet. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is taking me back so it's the diet so and the diet was what was the diet diet was um you know the pastures or the forages they kind of graze on and the key australian pasture which is grown more than 29 million hectares is uh subterranean clover the little clovers the lucky clovers so it was really lucky for me because it gave me that uh that kind of ground to learn because it's a very simple plant only have two copies of the genes from a genetics point of view uh, one sixth of the size of the genome as a human would have so very simple sort of a platform for it for someone to start its career but then mm-hmm. linked to a global issue uh, so that it kind of gives you that framework or that uh, depth into your area so yeah. that that was I worked on it for seven years and when I was able to put that puzzle together straight away I was able to work with everybody in Australia who was working on that pasture like from an animal health perspective from methane emissions perspective, or even just from like normal breeding values of the plants, how to grow more yeah. and stress tolerance, all sorts of aspects. So I kind of like went around and asked them all of them for their data, not open source at that time, because everybody yeah. was like, oh, we're going to get a great publication here. So, I mean, everybody come to the team because I had that centerpiece of the DNA puzzle. And I was really interested to see that how these things plug together. And I ended up like um, being one of the one of the very first people who brought like all these pieces together um, to connect to the genetics of that plant. And that led to many, many discoveries that led to a lot of animal welfare things because we don't need to. So to be able to study sheep and how the how the diet or things are doing inside the stomach, there's a procedure called fistulating the sheep. Um, mm-hmm. So you kind of make a hole and then that's how the, the you know, the gut uh, microbiome is taken and tested in artificial yeah. settings. 
And um, so now I've developed markers that now you don't need to go through that procedure. You can just develop, use a marker, molecular marker, to be able to assess the genetics of the sheep as well as how it is going to perform in that. So there's, there was a lot of things, um, translational things that come out of that project. Yeah. Uh, and one of the most interesting ones was I had an opportunity to go to Japan through a JSPS fellowship. And I learned that Japanese were working on red clovers, which is a sister species to clovers. Mm. And that's why they were really interested in my research. I got the fellowship to go there. And then yeah. when I asked around people, like, why are they working on red clovers? They're pretty and, you know, they don't have a big livestock in there. So what is it? That why, why are they so keen? They're like, oh, you don't know. They have got these really beautiful biomolecules called formanonitin or isoflavonoids or plant secondary metabolites which actually can help cure hot flushes in menopause during the menopause in women. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> very interesting. I want to know more about it. And, and they are naturally produced at a very high concentration in red clovers. And when Ooh. I compared my subclover with the red clover, it was producing way less. And in Australia, it's not a good idea because our plant breeders have been breeding for uh, clovers which produce the minimum amounts of formanonitin or um, those biomolecules. Reason being that sheep get sterile by feeding on those pastures. And once ah. you put the seed in the ground, it's just going to keep you coming every yeah. year. Keeps so it's seeding, like yeah. you put poison in the field, right? Mm. So it's not a preferred thing for sheep, but it is a great human health um thing so well it just kind of the project finished I learned a lot it kind of somewhere got stuck in my hand uh, head and I kept always thinking about it until um, you know the the cannabis and the THC thing happened and the synthetic biology come into play mm. where they were able to produce a completely artificially uh, create the, uh, the THC outside cannabis in the yeast and that was the moment. And I'm just like sitting at the uni club with a couple of people. <laughs> I had no idea they were they were they were interested in. They have worked with red clover in the past, and they have actually had a plant here in UWA, uh, 200 k's from UWA, where they actually cut a lot of um, grow a lot of red clover, cut and carry it and extract the compound to be able. And they were selling mm. it to a I had no background of that. I was just making a joke. I was like, oh, I would like to make a kombucha out of my clovers, which I will do in my lab to have like high amounts of commonality uh, because that's that's kind of the best way. And I, yeah. I, I don't want to put it in there. And I kind of understand the whole genetic network of that, how the plants are able to do it. And, you know, it's going to be the similar one as they produce THC. So like the cannabis situation. Um, well, a couple of days later, our innovation director said, Pavinda, we do that idea. That seems like, and we've already got some investors who are familiar with the field and they really want to, they, they were intrigued by what you were uh, talking. I was like, that was a joke. That was a joke. Seriously, I I don't know how to do it. I just, like, you know, I, I kind of understand, but I'm not sure. But look, um, it is very important. Uh, when there is a commercial opportunity, it's great for everybody. Yeah you can bring more investment into the research and can kind of create things which which is kind of blue sky so Ooh. they decided to fund uh, the, um, the some private investors uh, and my co-founder Stockley Davis he really believed in it and he decided to put together you know a little company 
which mm. is Expand Happy TY Limited now. We are also the finalist innovator of the year for this year. We're oh, only nice two-year-old company, but we oh, have actually, what we have achieved is in the last two years, we have synthesized that entire genetic network, um, which in the clover was producing those beautiful compounds. And yeah. then, then put it inside a yeast, right? which can make wine, which can make kombucha, which can make yogurt, which can make whatever you can think of making from a yeast or beer, you know, whichever thing kind of. But now we are able to, we don't put it in the in the paddock because it's not good for our livestock. Yes. We have a way to still, uh, you know, serve the supply chain uh, of the human health um, supplements to be able to produce in a more sustainable and a cleaner and a greener way. Mm. And the best thing about that is my students have not just got an academic path in front of them. They can also think of similar things. And that is the most important thing for me that, you know, we, we produce so many PhD students every year, but we do not have that many jobs to offer them. Yes. And so probably this is a way that, you know, there is so much opportunity and, uh, and there's so many discoveries that happen on our, on our benches in the labs. Um, if they, they learn how to pursue it and translate into a commercial opportunity, I don't think so. There is a problem with the money, you know, money's investors are looking to invest into good stuff. And uh, mm. if their pathway is available or if there's some examples available, I'm sure then we get a little bit better confidence in doing that. So, um, yeah, so um, I'm intrigued. I'm fascinated. Again, it's kind of like understanding the life, creating that knowledge, and you don't know what it will empower for your future. Yes. Uh, you may not be doing it right now, but you don't know in five years time what opportunities will come or what tools will become available to translate the knowledge which we are creating today. And exactly. that's why we're going to put it out there, make it accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah. yeah. So that's the story of my startup. That's amazing. And I, I just love that, you know, some of these things are things that you stumbled upon or just things that you built on that, you know, you'd already put down for a little while and just another opportunity came up down the track where it just went, yeah, I can actually apply this information. And, you know, it, it that's just the way it works. It's the way that science will work once you start talking to other people and finding other applications. And, you know, it, it's also great because this kind of thing, it does have commercial value. And you know, as you said, because there's only so many positions available for academics and for PhDs. And, you know, a lot of other people I've spoken to in this area have said, you need to find an exit strategy because you're not always going to be able to pursue pure academia. You need to be able to know that you can translate your skills and your knowledge into other fields into other applications, into other industries, and, you know, be able to say, you know, this is the value that I have that I can offer you. And this is how that we can advance and create and innovate and do things and, you know, just create. And yeah, it, it's just, it's very cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's, and you know, a lot of things happen, like, as I said, DNAs who happen on a Friday afternoon, fun thing, yeah. chasing up and then explain to happen as like an opportunity, which I had all the knowledge base about, but I did not know where and how to kind of take it to the next level. But that, that's what came, you know, when it had to come, it happened like six years after I created that knowledge. Yeah. And I would have never even in my dreams thought that, you know, I'll be a scientist with a startup. So mm. it's, it, it's really, um, 
it's really fascinating. And and one thing I've learned is people really value science. People really mm. value knowledge. Um, I, and we just need to make it more accessible. Yes. Yeah. It's awesome. And I think you've done that really well. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Okay. So I think probably a good place to kind of round off there. So we can move on to some of those extra questions I mentioned before. And see, which hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? And I know this could be hard because you've got such a broad range of interests. <laughs> um, I think I've just been too busy chasing the mysteries of life. <laughs> uh, I'm not, not, didn't have much time for a lot of hobbies. But one thing I really enjoy is is kind of like designing and creating stuff. So, I mean, I'm the dress I'm wearing today, I've, I kind oh, of nice. like got the fabric and kind of put it together. Um, it, it's just, 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 just creating things. And, and I, I like, um, I don't like to throw things away. And probably yeah. that is something that has come from the culture I've come from. My mom never always made one or the other thing out of this thing when it kind of ended its life as that particular item yeah. or something. So I, 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 that's that's what I do if I have any free time. Um, I like to see which things are not serving the purpose anymore they were meant to be. So I like to create something else out of it. And it just kind of yeah. gives me a mental break um, and a little bit more creative creative time which I enjoy the most yeah yeah and you know it, it's great like doing that sort of thing being able to repurpose or you know creating something out of your hands it's something really quite gratifying out of doing all of that it's it's recycling basically but yeah, yeah. it's just like fun ways to do it and I, I've seen that my son really enjoys that with me as well and with that you can actually learn how to be more sustainable and doesn't you don't have to go and buy a new thing all the time there's exactly. a lot around you which you could probably repurpose yeah absolutely okay and which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you <laughs> i've already told you that it's, yes it's like it's all the religious books i could get yeah. access to or i could read and i could get translation for um and because that kind of really intrigued me really intrigued me i'm so sorry i'm so boring but this this is exactly no. what found, made the foundation of my my career or I don't call it a career I, I feel like I'm living a dream and I even if That's I amazing. was not paid to do it I would probably be doing exactly this thing yeah yeah but probably very differently but yeah I'm, I'm grateful <laughs> grateful to have this job oh absolutely and you know it's it's not boring to have those things that really do have an impact on the way that you view the world and you know you know, even myself when I was you know, younger, I, I went through all these different religious texts because I had family members who were very religious. I went to you know, United Church School and it always fascinated me because there were all these different faiths and all these beliefs, but there's always so much commonality between the texts and between the stories. And because all of it was, a lot of it was, um, it was spoken word tradition and you just passed stories on and fables and all that. Like, there's a lot of commonality and a lot of people forget that some of these things really did stem from the same place. And so that's why your stories are going to have some familiar elements and, you know, all of these ways of thinking, all these paths of thought are things that completely predate so much other stuff. And at its core, the messages are all the same. And yes. that's the thing that I found so fascinating looking into all yes. of these other things. 
But it is a very enlightening at the same time as intriguing and fascinating because suddenly you realize that, you know, there's people fighting over these things. And I was like, go and actually read it, you know, yeah. because they, they're educating themselves by not from the real sources. So their reference is not right. People people kind of learning secondhand information. And that's what I always say uh, to my son and all the kids I get to interact with is always find the right source of knowledge. Uh, because as empowering it could be and enlightening it could be, it could also be very damaging if you do not chase the right source of knowledge. So yeah. it is it is very critical to be able to, to be able to get that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? I would just say, you know, follow your heart. Um, and if there is something that intrigues you, go and chase it. And don't worry about that, whether it fits into a traditional career path or a traditional disciplinary setting. Um, just do it because you will, the path is always under construction. And why not you create that path, not just for yourself, but also many others. And as right now, what we are going through in the world is everything is reinventing itself. And I don't think so. I can even give an advice in terms of a career to, to the next generation at this moment, because we do not even have an idea of what kind of uh, careers are going to be. Uh, careers yeah. are going to look like in five years time or 10 years time so my only advice is just follow your heart follow your you know hunch whatever you've got everybody's got something and make this and always be conscious that everything is connected everything is you do is going to have a domino effect on many other things on this on this in this universe so always be conscious of that when you're making your choices or following your dreams so follow your dreams but be aware of your connections with the rest of the universe. That's awesome. That's excellent Thank advice. Because <laughs> you need, to, yeah, you need to be able to understand your own context and where your passions lie in that particular frame. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people, I think, you, you get so narrowly focused on one particular path, you forget that you can deviate and you can explore. And that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. awesome. And life is fun. Enjoy it. It is. It's so much fun. <laughs> And you, yeah, you don't know what your path is going to do and where you're going, where it's going to take you. Absolutely. Yeah. Following your dream connects you to the people with similar dreams and similar thinking. And that, that just makes it more and more fun. Yeah. It does. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rowinda, for speaking with me today. It has been absolutely amazing. And yeah, I've been so excited talking with you about all of these things. It's amazing. I love it. And yeah, just learning about the scope of DNA and how, you know, it does mean that we are all connected, whether plant, animal, you know, environment. It, it's all, it's all one. It's all so, one. Absolutely. Yes. So if people would like to know more about your work and what you do, where can they go? Uh, they can actually go to dnazoo.org. So we have a dnazoo website where you can actually connect and subscribe and, um, you know, get all of the information we release on a weekly basis in your inbox. Uh, for Xplanter, you can go to xplanter.com.au um, and we're trying to put all the resources in there as we are discovering new things. Um, yeah, or you can Google me up and I'm sure that there will be things coming up that I talk and trying to make it as accessible as possible to everyone. And I'm always reachable on my email, um, which is 
uh, available on UW website as well. Amazing. Well, thank, thank you again so much. This has been absolutely wonderful and I hope you have an amazing day. Thank you so much, Michelle. That was absolutely awesome. I've loved speaking with Parwenda about her work in genomics and her passion for this code of life and making this knowledge accessible to all. Because as we're learning, it's all connected. To learn more about Parwenda and what we discuss in the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Parwenda on Twitter at dr underscore Parwenda, DNAZoo at dnazoo.org, and Xplanter at xplanter.com.au the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe, leave a comment, or rate us on your favourite app, and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and the Steam Powered Show, the link which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.